This is Bumping Into, where we have interesting conversations with people from all walks of life. I'm Francis Populin and welcome to Bumping Into. As this is set to become episode one, I'll give you a bit of a background on the show. Bumping Into is intended to be a very broad, conversational-based podcast. So don't get that confused with an interview, which is very fixed and very rigid. It's also definitely not an opinion piece. We have enough of those out there already. So what I want you to think is comedians in cars mixed with the old ABC Late Line program. It's non-rushed, low editing, but very professional. A big difference, as I see it anyway, is that we're not going to be chasing the trending and famous We want the interesting and the unassuming. If they happen to be trending and famous, then that's fine, but that's not why we're chasing them. Social media also is not going to have a large part of what we do. It's going to be there for people to find an episode. It's not going to be there to define us. If we do this right, each show will be radically different to the next and from the last. Now, on to this one, episode one, what has become episode one, The Vietnam War, with Dennis Harahan. The Vietnam War was a costly and controversial war, spanning from 1955 to 1975. The war became a huge part of 1960s and 70s culture. My guest on the show is Dennis Harahan. True to the format, I bumped into Dennis. Uh, He's a retired US Special Forces officer who fought in the Vietnam War. I stopped in mid-conversation and asked him if he'd like to be on the show because what I thought he was saying was important and interesting. This is a story of his time in and after the Vietnam War. I'm sure you're probably aware, you mentioned about the, the Vietnam War. Yep. 45 years was the anniversary of, in April of this year yeah. of it ending, mm-hmm. um, which I, I didn't, didn't hear of. It wasn't spoken of as such, you know what I mean? No one sort of had a new story about it not you know it just seemed to be quite quiet for an important anniversary um you would think 45 years is a, you know, a long time ago but mm-hmm. not not that long ago also well is, you know, know when, when it's within your own lifetime yeah like mature age lifetime yeah it doesn't seem like that long ago yeah no no so i wanted to take you back to how you ended up there how, what was the oh, okay. what was the way that you ended up coming into that war? All right, um, I'd gone to college, and uh, I had always wanted to fly. It was my dream, and I took a little bit of ROTC, found I was qualified. I could qualify as a pilot you know, with the you know the aptitude tests and everything. Uh, you can you know, adjust attitude, you know, visualize attitude, oh, you know, okay. like whether you're in a bank, left, right bank, climbing, descending, whatever from the horizon. And so there I was basically, I had the basic qualifications. So I figured, well, I'm going to enjoy college. I'm not going to go into ROTC. I'm going to have a good time. And then when I graduate, I'll try to sign up with the Air Force and off I go. Didn't quite go to plan. Because just before graduation, I got this little letter. And all the jokes that, well, Americans talk about, it literally does say greetings. Your friends and neighbors, that's what I remember. I was thinking, well, none of my friends, but maybe some of my neighbors had you know, selected you to you know, defend Americans, blah, 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 whatever it was. So I got drafted, basically. Wow. And um, I remember 
going into basic training, we had two completely disparate groups of people. We had a bunch of uh, ghetto New Yorkers, um, Latinos, Puerto Ricans, a lot of black guys, uh, a few white guys from New York, and we had a whole bunch of Southerners, blacks and whites. Okay. And, um, and we're playing you know, basic training. We get to play a little bit of Army. I'm thinking, this is not good. <laughs> I don't want to go into the jungle with these guys. Uh, so those but guys have no – they're just plucked out of the general public. And oh, yeah. Off you go. We'll teach you broad basics. It wasn't, it wasn't a lottery. It was just uh, like anybody that – if you were in college, you had an exemption. Or certainly if you were married, you had an exemption. Oh, okay. If, um, if, you're, um, if you were the only surviving son of a World War II veteran, you, oh, had, you had an okay. exemption. If you had a brother – uh, who had been already killed in Vietnam, you had an exemption. And if you didn't want to go? Well, if you didn't want to go, you had an option of either going to jail or... Or going to war. Getting out of the, no, getting out of the country. Oh. So a lot of people avoided the draft by going to Canada. So you could just take off and... Well, but you couldn't come back in the country because right. you'd be subject to arrest. Right. So or you're starting a new life somewhere else. Is your, it's get up and go. Pretty much, yeah, if, if you did that. And the Canadians would grant asylum of sorts uh, to the Americans that declined. So they were way. open to it. They were like, yeah, fair enough. If you want to come over. Well, no, they, it was never publicized, but they never cracked they down didn't chase on. You down. Yeah, they didn't, didn't track you down. Didn't, uh, I knew a couple of guys later that had gone to Canada. Wow. And uh, one guy actually, he was originally from Florida, and he said he couldn't stand the winters. Too cold. <laughs> yeah, too damn cold. <laughs> too damn cold. But that was that was the only option. You either go in or you you get out, go to jail, uh, and some people did choose to go to jail, on on principle. And you're in there for the duration of the war. I forget. Well, no, the um, the the Vietnam tours were one year. Right. So you could do a year potentially. In jail. Yeah. So if you were a straight draftee, you owed you owed Sam Uncle Sam two years, okay. and one of them would have been in Vietnam, and then another year in some American facility somewhere. It might be Germany, it might be Korea, but more likely than not back in a, what they called CONUS, Continental United States. And I know it, you probably can't answer that because you weren't in the world wars, but what was that feeling, do you think, compared to a young boy, First World War, Second World War, being told, all right, you've got to go, son, as opposed to when they said it to your generation? A lot of people had a lot of different reactions because... This was the 60s. Uh, there were some that went very reluctantly that were definitely against the war. Yeah. Um, there were some gung-ho, let's you know, kill a commie for God type of th types. Yeah. Um, there were some that had a bit of ambivalence about the whole thing. Uh, but World War II, for instance, was a national crusade. My, my, my father, two days after the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor... Uh, signed up, joined the Navy. Oh, so there was that, everyone on board, let's try in, and stop in, in World War Two. yeah, definitely. Because yeah. you were, were fighting for, you, you could see it, it was straight black and white, a fight for democracy. Yeah. Um, the Japanese attacked, attacked the Americans. Uh, there was no involvement against the Germans at the time because of the vast American, the, the public in America was against intervening in a European war. Yeah, yeah. But, but obviously, um, once they turn up on but your But once shore. the Japanese, we'll say the Japanese attacked, so we declared war on the Americans 
I keep saying we, I'm an Australian now. <laughs> but the Americans declared war on the Japanese. And then the Germans, because they were Japanese allies, declared war on America. So America then got into the war against Germany. Right, right. Yeah, okay. Which is what the English wanted desperately. Yeah. Because so they were on their help. own by that at that stage. Yeah. And had been for a couple of years. Which, and tell me if I'm wrong, the key reason that the whole war, Vietnam War, started was the whole thing of the, the South was under like a French-type democracy oh. and the North was more of a communistic... Okay, well, I mean, going back a little bit, um, the French were the, had been the colonial masters of Indochina, all of Indochina. Uh, they, there was Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. Uh, I, the time events, I don't know. I, I, I believe that, that North Vietnam was ruled as, um, maybe as Vietnam, and then Annam was another. But they, were, they actually did have Vietnam divided into two. Oh, so there was a border. Semi-separate, not a border as such, but two ad- administrative areas. Yep. Then Cambodia and then Laos. Uh, when the Japanese occupied Indochina in the war, in World War II, Vietnam had a couple of natural harbors, some of the best harbors in the world. Um, but there was a, a resistance group against the Japanese that had started, basically, I mean, there had been resistance against the French going back into the 20s and 30s. Oh, wow. But um, they got it more organized. I don't probably won't have time to... Under, Ho Chi Minh had studied in France and become a, became a communist. He was a socialist, became a communist over there. But he came back... I, I don't know who organized what, but they were they formed an anti-Japanese group. And uh, at one point toward the end of the war, some American advisors were parachuted in with weapons and um, to assist the, uh, the Vietnamese under Ho Chi Minh fighting against the Japanese. Uh, the plan apparently was at the end of the war, the Americans were going to push very hard against the colonial powers reestablishing themselves anywhere. But, um, of course, the Russians then had occupied all of Eastern Europe. You know, the Iron Curtain yeah. came down. Uh, the theory at the time was that communism was a monolithic block. And uh, the, uh, the, the communist Chinese, again, a different historical thing. Anybody that wants to find out can, can look it up. But the communist Chinese had been fighting against the nationalist Chinese for years and years and years. Communists finally won in 1948. They took Beijing, Shanghai, whatever. And the nationalists all retreated to Taiwan. And that's how that whole thing started. Oh, right. Um, but because communism was seen as kind of a monolithic bloc, uh, Ho Chi Minh, against the French, was seen as a threat, part of the continuing it's just keep expansion of communism. So the Americans came in and supported the French taking over again. And then the French got kicked out in 1954 after... Uh, the disaster at a place called Dien Bien Phu when they, they, got, they got their clocks cleaned, basically. And Vietnam was established into two separate territories. One was occupied by the communists. The other was ostensibly a free country. The emperor was still, they had an emperor at the time, was, was still sort of on the throne. He got overthrown. Um, there were supposed to be free and fair elections, nationwide at one stage, and the Americans kind of postponed it because Ho Chi Minh would have gotten in nationally with a landslide. And then that's how the various dictatorships in 
South Vietnam came in that was overthrown, military president presidents and corruption, vast corruption yeah. in the South. And the South, because it was so corrupt initially, the South Vietnamese army was almost like a personal army of the president to defend him, not against the communists, but about against competitors in within South Vietnam. Wow. Uh, if you look at the dates, it goes... It starts in 1955. Mm-hmm. That's when the Americans first came in with a big, big assistance program yeah. for the uh, the South Vietnamese. I mean, a lot of people who, who don't know a lot about it would assume it's late 60s because obviously that was the... The big build-up. Yeah, yeah. But I, I was blown away in 1955 and then it ended in 1975. So that's, that's a massive time of fighting. Hmm. There so was a book uh, called The 10,000-Day War. About the whole history of it. Wow, okay. All right. So you're, you've turned up and you're not happy with the crew that you're training with. Yeah, I, I'm looking at these these guys that from the New York side of things. And what year? What, what roughly what year? Do you oh, that was 1967. Okay, so it's been going on already for a fair while. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but even the big, the big build-up in America, for the, the, the major build-up didn't come until 1968. That was the peak period. But I was looking at these guys from New York and thinking, because they thought Central Park was the was the jungle, oh. <laughs> basically. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'm looking, no, I don't want to go into the jungle with these guys. Um, and I was qualified for officer candidate school. So I went, this is kind of neat. In the American Army, there are three combat branches, infantry, artillery, and armor. And then they have all like chemical service corps and medical service corps and um, signal corps and all these other branches, they call them. The deal was, if you went in for OCS, you could nominate three branches of your choice. They called it a dream sheet. Okay. So I picked, I don't know, medical service corps, I think maybe signal corps, and you had to include one military branch or one combat branch. So I figured, what do they have the least of in Vietnam? Tanks. So I selected tanks. I got infantry. <laughs> the army just said, here you are, boy, and off you go. Infantry. So I went to a place called Fort Benning. And uh, I, again, I was taking a look around at everything and from what I remembered in, in basic training. Um, the one group in the American army that was really, really, really professional was special forces, the old Green Berets. So I put my hand up for that, and I had to go through jump school training, airborne training, jump school and then I took ranger training, and then I went off to special forces training. So and how long does this take? How, uh, you know, are you oh. called, you're plucked out of the war zone to do the training? No, no, no. I, I, I'd just gone into basic training. Basic training was in the U.S. Right. Um, it was, uh, oh, about about a year, oh, a bit okay. over, over a year altogether, the, you know, the different, different things. I mean, OCS was, by itself, was about six months. Yeah, okay. And you learned all about, you know, supposedly how to be a lieutenant uh Yep, what they, they used to say with the, uh, the infantry, follow me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking I'll be a gentleman after you. you yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, no, I got in special forces, and then I, um, with the special forces, I got assigned uh, in Vietnam. I got a spot into a kind of a, it, w- it was like a special operations group uh, called Mobile Guerrilla. Uh, we had, uh, we worked with uh, a Cambodian government in exile. They were anti-CNOP, anti, uh, anti-communists. 
and they hired their army out to the Americans. Special Forces was in the part of the American army, but not under the American army command in the same way that normal infantry division was, like the 1st Division or the 25th Division or the 4th Division. Um, So we were doing, like, it was like a special operations thing with these Cambodes. And we did ranged in things from uh, what they call LERP missions, long-range reconnaissance patrol, where you go deep into bad guy country. You go with uh, two Americans and four Cambodes. You load up about, I don't know, as I recall, probably about 75 pounds of gear on your back, including the radio. And you'd be trying to find reconnaissance, uh, information, intelligence on what the bad guys were doing, where they were moving, what, what was going on, where base camps were. So you're going in to talk to other people? Oh, no, no. You're, you're going very quietly. So you're going in to see as close as you can get without them seeing you? Yeah. And you carried yeah. enough uh, weapons and ammunition that if you were sprung, you could be the baddest guy in the jungle for about 10 minutes. And would that have been enough, do you reckon, to get you out of To break contact and... And just pull back and... Yeah. There was a Creedence Clearwater had a song called uh, Run Through the Jungle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was... Uh, and that was so based off that sort of approach that... I, I used to call it a, a, a post-combat um, track meet. Oh. <laughs> Basically, you go into the firefight and then just... And then you call the helicopters in. We were... But we were uh, very well supported. We had a, a dedicated... A Ford Air Controller, FAC. Uh, they flew a, a type of airplane called a bird dog. It was like a Piper Cub. And we would have them up virtually from first light to last light. Wow. Not okay. directly overhead, but within radio range yeah. because they didn't want to give away you know, the position. So if we got into some trouble, we could call right away. And then we also home. had dedicated artillery we could call in. So we had to be our own, again, it's a military term, FO, Ford Observer. Right, okay. So if we got into a bad enough situation, I could get on the radio and through the fact, I could call in artillery and make the adjustments. Like you, you have a shell landing at point A, and it's not quite exactly where the bad guys are, so you can say drop like 50 meters, 100 meters, right, okay. right yep. 50 meters, and then fire for effect. So they'd always put in one or two or three shells initially. You know, to get your bearings, to get, get yeah. the bearings, and yeah. then you make the adjustment. Uh, we could also call in uh, air support. We had um, F one hundreds. We could call one time. We had we called them Huns hundred F one hundred. We called in uh, the Huns one time on a on an ambush mission that went badly. Um, we were. We were out on it. There was a canal called the Kimbobo Canal. It was a big canal that ran from Cambodia into Vietnam. And it was a, a major, major, it was a supply route. The bad guys would come down at night in sampans with weapons, ammunition, food, whatever, for the Viet Cong area, Viet Cong, yep. not the North Vietnamese. And uh, we had set up on a um, on this canal bank. I was on the, the left flank security. We had the, a kill zone. That's where the main part of the ambush was. Then right flank security and rear security. And the canal, there was a big canal bank, and then there was an irrigation ditch because it was a, behind us was just an old abandoned uh, sugarcane plantation. Oh, okay. So nothing happened that night. You know, so we're waiting for the helicopters to pick us up in the morning. And I've got still, you know, you sleep with your rucksack against a tree or something like that on your back. And 
have your weapon on your chest. So uh, I was trying to catch a little bit of shut-eye because the camboats couldn't be relied to stay awake all night. So anyhow, nothing happened. I'm catching some shut-eye waiting for the helicopters to come, and one of my camboats, uh, Tiwi, Lieutenant, Tiwi, Tiwi, VC come, VC come. So I look up, and coming down the irrigation ditch, there's six guys in single single file. I, they knew we were, we, they were looking for us. They were, you know, kind of crouched over. They had their weapons in alert position and looking and looking and looking. So I called the kill zone. It was the, the commander of the whole mission. Told him what we had, and he said, well, initiate contact at your discretion. In other words, we were the hunters that were now being hunted. Wow. So anyhow, to make a long story short, we opened up on them. They opened up on us. And then behind us, everything just, they had a whole bunch of guys coming up behind us. They didn't know where we were exactly. They were doing kind of like a sweep, trying to find out. And once the gunfire started, they opened up. Well, we called in for support. And uh, at that point, my little group, you know, six of us, four of us, I should say, were down in the, at the left flank about 25 meters away from the main area. And um, we were taking the brunt of the fire. Not accurate. They were just like firing in the area. And I'm thinking, <laughs> one of these things you look back on, and it's kind of really ridiculous. Okay, there's no cover as such, because it's just a canal bank, and you've got bushes and, and trees, some bamboo trees, and banana trees, which aren't particularly good cover. Mm. You know, bullets will chop those things down. Yeah. So I'm thinking, do we scramble to the back side of the canal or the canal side of the bank, or the canal bank, for cover, which would then expose us if they were on the other side of the canal, completely expose us. Yeah. You know, as naked as the day you were born type of thing. Or do we kind of just flatten out on the ground and use concealment so they couldn't see us, you know, hide behind bushes and things. And so this is what's going on. Do we do this? Do we do yeah. this? Do we do this? Yeah, do split we? second, you're trying to process. And Fat came on over, and he gave me my call sign. He said, uh, you know, can you pop a we, – we carry these signal flags, that, you know, like international orange, iridescent orange, and they were maybe about, oh, three-quarters of a meter square. So I rolled over my back, and I'm, and you, you hold it in two hands over your chest, and then you pop it out, right, so he can and you see. keep doing this, right? Because so it, it makes an irregular sight. And he okay, got you tagged. He said, uh, "Get your heads down." Looked up, and there's a flight of F-100s streaking in, uh, and we could hear the uh, the radio, him talking to the uh, to the uh, the fighters, the fighter bombers, and I heard him say "pickle," and looked up and. Four bombs dropped off the wings of the lead airplane. And, I mean, he could see all this. And the bombs are coming down. And these were what they, I, I think they called them drag bombs. They had like a fin that would open up toward the rear, from the front to the rear, to drag the bomb. Because when the bomb releases, it's going at the same speed of the airplane. Oh, okay. yep. So with the drag, they could estimate where it was going to hit. So I'm looking, and all of a sudden, it looked like these damn bombs are coming right down on us. And we just got as flat as we could. And the explosions were close enough because he could see the bad guys from from the air. Looking down through a cane field, there's no concealment from the air. Yeah. He could spot exactly where they were. So he was trying to bring the bombs right on top of them. And when the first one went off, again, this is all like canal country. They do get a lot of rains. It, it's a lot, it's a lot of it's still boggy even during the dry season. The whole canal, just the bank that we were on, was just shaking and vibrating from the uh, from the bombs. And, uh, but eventually the, the fight was over. And, you know, by this time, the gunships came in with a helicopter escort that was picking us up. They spotted these, these guys and uh, just, 
And it was all over, yeah, because, again, they were in the open. So the guns were coming in with rockets and miniguns and everything, and bad guys broke contact. They got a, But a bunch of them didn't quite make the retreat. No. That's amazing. It's a, to think lucky you had those resources available, otherwise you're a sitting duck. Well, no, it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't lucky. This was all, all planned. This was all part of our, our operation. We were doing some special operations, I guess you could say. And so it's all calculated. You've sort of well, we predetermined. Had, well, we had, no, but we had these assets on call. Yep. It wasn't like we, we need to call them up and let, let's see if we can get and something. Hope that they're, yeah, they're free. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we had dedicated, like the artillery was cold tubes. And I think we had, um, like, from whatever the nearest artillery base was, we would have, I think, three tubes that would be on standby, dedicated to where we were working. Right. Jeez. Yeah. But the, the, the thing is that, that even at the time, and I guess, I don't know how this goes to mindset or anything, but some guys never made the adjustment to being in Vietnam. Yeah. And, and rightfully so. Yeah, it's oh, no, a, yeah. Un- understandably yeah. so. I just looked at it as this is reality. This is, this is where I am. Yeah. Um, just make the best of, of where you are and, and treat it accordingly. I didn't want to be there. Yeah, I make no bones say, about so it. I had no desire to be there. Yeah, but you just dealt with it and moved forward. Well, you yeah. make the best of a bad, a bad hand, basically. Yeah, you you play the hand you're dealt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was with a very professional group, and this was the. And that would have been the difference. Because oh yeah, that group would have most likely had a similar mindset to yourself. Oh God, yeah. The, at at the time it, in the special forces for the enlisted men, uh, the Americans have. Again, going through the ranks, there's a private, corporal, there's a sergeant with the stripes. There's private is one stripe. Oh, okay. Corporal yeah. is two stripes. Sergeant is three stripes. But then there was a sergeant, let's see, platoon sergeant, which was three stripes and what called a rocker, a curled, curved, um, like a half circle yep. below the three stripes. And then there was a, um, a, a staff sergeant. And, and it went up from there. Uh, the, um, let's see, a private was E1, corporal was E2, sergeant was E3, um, E4, E5. You could not be, nothing below E5 was in special forces. These are guys that were mostly career yeah. NCOs, non-commissioned officers, sergeants. That's a completely different mindset to... And, and special forces at the time, um, I believe, and again, I might be wrong here, um, but roughly of all the... Because it was strictly volunteer. You weren't assigned special forces. Officers were, but yeah. enlisted men. Um, I think the, the success rate of getting through training group was about 3%. 3%? Yeah. So really the... Best of the best. It, was, it wasn't a even 50-50 chance. No, no, no. Th- these were the, the best that the Army had to offer. Wow. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. You've definitely done well to be in that category. Well, again, I had volunteered for Special Forces, but this was the unit I was assigned to yep. when I got into Special Forces. Whether 
anything that I had demonstrated going through training group or in in OCS. I have no idea, honestly, no idea. But that's the unit I was assigned to. And we had our CO was a guy named Jim Greitz, who actually made a lot of headlines uh, as uh, they pronounce it grits. But he became later on one of these survival idiots up in Idaho or someplace. You know, the, the survivalists, you know, we get away. The, the government's a vast yep. conspiracy to undermine us. We need to strike out with our own freedom. Yep, and, and they're the ones that have, they, they prep for everything. This, their own yeah, this, that, that, that was his mindset. But in the civilian world, he was weird. In the military, you'd follow him to hell. Yeah, and you can see why then, because of the, the discipline, the planning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There, there were some some people um, that were good combat soldiers, um, lousy civilian type peacetime soldiers. Yeah. And um, one of, I think one of the big drawbacks that we had during the Vietnam War is that a lot, I won't say a lot, but a number of relatively senior officers had gone through the 1950s mindset and it was like a numbers game you you, you do this to get a, this to get this promotion you do this to get this promotion it wasn't necessarily based on oh, i guess talent but it was as much based on what butts you kissed what <laughs> politics you knew what games you were able to play, play better than play somebody else Basically, but yeah. then when the war, well, it's like World War II. Um, at the beginning of World War II, uh, Dwight Eisenhower, who became the Supreme Commander for the Allied unit, was a, a colonel. Well, he wasn't even a general. So, yeah, so a lot of that stuff hasn't changed today. So, yeah, yeah. so when, when, when a war comes out, the cream rises to the top. Yeah, yeah. By definition. Yep. I don't know if you saw the, uh, that series uh, called Bands of Brothers about World War II was about a group, it's true, it, this thing's all true, a group in the 101st Airborne, uh, just a small company in the 101st Airborne Division. And, and the, the series follows them all the way through the war. And they're all real people, actors playing their parts, but they're all real people. And the guy that was their commanding officer in, ba in, in training before they got into the war was a captain. He was hated and loathed by everybody under his command. But there was a scene later in the war, about maybe 1944, so it's like four years in. Um, one of the lieutenants under his command was now a major. Um, and he was still a captain, but not even a combat captain. He was like working in supplies. Oh, okay. So like he had, had you know, the power before the war. He was a captain with all the different connections and everything, a, a gentleman, I guess, and yep. what they called an officer and a gentleman. But he never advanced any further because he did not have the talent, the qualifications, the qualities needed for a, a combat situation. Yeah, yep. Judgment, whatever you want to call it. Would you say the training that you got, did that give you any other life skill set after? Was it a thing of... Oh, yeah. You um, carried a lot of that... The mindset. I mean, I'm assuming they would have touched a lot on this is not going to be nice. You're going to have to mentally deal with a lot of things. Was that touched on in your training? No, not at all. So not at all. But 
indirectly, I mean, not from that first tour. I came back uh, after my first tour and um, eventually so, went to helicopter flight school. So how long? So the so how long were you there for? So you sixty eight ish. You went um, well. Yeah, 68, virtually all of 68, part of 69, then 70, 71, 72, thereabouts, okay. yeah. So when I went to helicopter flight school, that's what gave me the, the career that I eventually had because, um, as I told you earlier, I, you know, I'd always dreamed of being a pilot. Yeah. And because I was an officer, I had a longer obligation than, than just the two years. Yeah. And uh, I reasoned that if I go in for a second, I mean, I would be sent back to Vietnam for a second tour. And I didn't particularly want to be on the ground, so I put my hand up for flight school, helicopter Makes flight sense. school. Yeah. And um, while I was waiting, this was good, I ended up living, I was, I was assigned as an advisor to a National Guard group in, in New York, New York City, Brooklyn, actually. And I ended up living with seven Pan Am pilots in like a, a semi mansion in Forest Hills, New York, oh, wow. and this was like 1969, which was a great place <laughs> <laughs> to be at the time. Yeah. And the house—I don't know if this would be seen as pretty hot and cold running stewardesses. That's all I can say. <laughs> so this was—I I died well, and gone to heaven. Well, yeah, I suppose that's the pinnacle of the whole free time that you know Woodstock had been. And yeah, it, well, I actually got yeah. to Woodstock as well. Oh, okay. Which was a. It, the, just for what it's worth, the uh, the four day festival uh, was if you bought tickets was for the princely sum of twenty five dollars. Twenty five dollars, which was actually a, yeah. a fairly good chunk of money in nineteen sixty nine. Been a, a fair bit, but yeah. twenty five yeah. bucks. Yeah. You go down and see on my twenty fourth birthday, um, I went down with with my girlfriend. We went to see Hair uh, matinee on Broadway. We went down to Greenwich Village for dinner, and then we went to a place called the Fillmore East Auditorium. There were um, two great rock emporiums at the time, owned by a guy named Bill Graham, Fillmore East and Fillmore West in San Francisco. And any rock band worth a damn would play one of the Fillmores, oh, or okay. both. So my 24th birthday, it, it was an old converted movie theater, too. We were in the front row of the balcony, and uh, there was, uh, let's see, uh, Chuck Berry was the opening act, which, which was not bad. Uh, then Elvin Bishop Blues Band. Elvin Bishop, still around, a killer blues player. And then Credence was the main act okay. um, when Proud Mary was number one in the entire galaxy. So, yeah, that's a big deal. Yeah, right. and we were in the front row of the balcony looking straight down. By the time Credence came out, the whole place smelled like a burning rope factory. <laughs> <laughs> if you catch my drift. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, I went off to uh, helicopter flight school and did my second tour of flying helicopters. And... Uh, I came back. I had snaggled a class date, um, even though I was a helicopter pilot, with an airline. I wanted to fly with an airline called Braniff Airlines. And uh, that was looking pretty good until the Arabs pulled the plug on one of the oil embargoes. All the class dates were canceled. Uh, by this time, I'd had seven years in the Army altogether. Jeez. I didn't know how to work for a living because the Army certainly wasn't yeah. working for a living as such. And I got a job flying helicopters in Indonesia. And uh, went over to Indonesia. We, uh, we worked two weeks on and two weeks off. Uh, we had 75% discounts on about six different airlines. And uh, I met a couple from St. Kilda, one of my little, I spent a lot of my break time in Bali. Yep. And Bali in the you know, mid-70s was absolute heaven. 
I met this couple from St. Kilda and went down to visit them um, and got set up on a blind date, which turned out to be game, set, and match, and ended up in Australia. That's it, yeah. And that would have been, so what year was that in St. Kilda? Oh, gee, that would have been 76. Okay. All right. Thereabouts. Yeah. So St. Kilda was a wild place back in the 70s too. It was known for its party yeah, well, I, well these, yeah. These, this couple I met uh, did know how to party. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Bali back at the time, though, was, was just, I say, it was just absolute heaven. There were no, there were two hotels on the beach on, on Kuta side. There was one in Kuta and one in Ligian. And then the rest, it was just open beach, completely open beach. There were no big main roads or anywhere. The, the main road in Kuta was called Jalan Pantai, and it was um, semi-paved. There were no sidewalks as such. Uh, 10 o'clock at night, everything buttoned up. Jeez. Uh, no discos. There was one bar that stayed open. It was on Ligian Road going down. Ligian, went, I'll get to that in a minute. Ligian was about a kilometer away. And this place stayed open until midnight. So everybody went back. They stayed in these places called Lossman's or like a homestay, hope motel type of thing. And nowadays you go up there and there are hotels that cater to the Australians that catered to the French, catered to the Germans. Then it was all in. Okay. Yeah. And broken English was, English of some degree, was the main source of communication. So you're, you're meeting people from all over the world. Yeah. Literally. And one of the funniest things I saw was a, um, a French guy who spoke no German trying to pick up a, a German lady who spoke no French. <laughs> the whole thing is going on in broken English. <laughs> so they picked the English as their as their bridge. Well, that was the only that was the only one only thing they had. Yeah, because you know a lot of Europeans studied some English in school. Uh, so I I mean not to make too fine a point on it, but when two people don't have any language in common except for one, and that's not particularly fluent. You cut to the heart of the matter right away. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's there's no small chat. And it, it didn't work out though for the French guy. <laughs> <laughs> Put it that way. And all these areas. So even back the the islands you've been to, Vietnam. Have you been back? I haven't been back to Vietnam. I never got a chance to. Um, I would like to. Because it's it's supposed to be quite a, a hot tourist destination oh, yeah, now. Yeah. yeah. What I'd, what I'd like, I mean, if I could go back, uh, one place I'd like to go would be a, a town called Tain Inn. Uh, we did a lot of our operations out of a little uh, French, uh, it's a Michelin rubber plantation. Oh, right, okay. It, it, just outside of Tain Inn. And uh, the, there's a, a, a religion, endemic, or a spe specific, I should say, to, uh, to part of Vietnam called Cao Dai. And they, uh, again, this is, uh, as I recall, it, it's... Largely based on Buddhism, but some of their saints are like Karl Marx, uh, George Bernard Shaw, Jesus, right. Muhammad. They cover so everything. Like a hybrid. They've brought a lot of things in to form yeah. their own. But thing. I'd like to go back and see Tain In. I know I wouldn't recognize it, but I'd like to go back and see Tain In. Because it would be interesting to see from how you last left to what it is now. Oh. I mean, it would have to be night and day different, but... Uh, you know, I wonder if there would be that sense of, yeah, this bit still looks the same. Yeah. You know, I think it was a German writer named Thomas Mann said, you can never go home again. Yeah. 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 I imagine it would be tough for a lot of people to go back to that too. A lot of American GIs have. 
um, to, because they, there are battlefield tours. Yeah, they can. Yeah. They, they'll take you through. Same as the World War Two ones through Europe. They yeah. have the tours. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and that that would be an interesting thing to do. Obviously, it's got a sad underpin about you know what went on, but it mm-hmm. would be fascinating. Well, it, if you uh, you know Ken Burns did that uh, series a bunch of years ago on the American Civil War, which was possibly some of the best television ever done. Um, and he did a, a series on Vietnam. It's on Netflix. Interestingly, he interviewed both Americans, North Vietnamese Army survivors, and Viet, Viet Cong to get different perspectives. Yeah, yeah. Which is, which is how far we've moved. I mean, it's, it's over 50 years ago. I'm, yeah, 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 yeah. This was, I was, you know, 20, 23 when I was over there the first time. I'm 75 now. A young 75. You've got to add that bit in. Pardon? A young 75. Um, in the head, perhaps. Uh, <laughs> I, I I have a, it's just like a theory I've got that you can, depending on how you live your life, there, there will be a time when everything in your life is running perfectly. You are where you want to be. You're doing what you want to do. You're making decent money and you have no obligations. And for me, it was that period in Indonesia. Oh, so uh, that was the sweet spot. That was my sweet spot. And and if you if something like that happens to you to a certain extent the eyes that you look out to the world with are the eyes that looked out at the world at that time. Yeah. And perhaps it does keep you younger because it was so good yeah. that that has stayed with you. So it's it's sort of become your base. Your I don't know who I it, what tone. Growing up is inevitable, or growing old is inevitable. Inevitable. Growing up is optional. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So I've got a few things that I had dug up. Some did you knows about the uh, the Vietnam War that I didn't know. So the total tonnage of bombs that were dropped uh, on the north surpassed that. Of all the bombs dropped for Germany, Italy, Japan during World War Two, mm-hmm. that's an astronomical amount yeah. of bombs. You know, for one one country. Well, we we'd we'd see every once in a while we were going on on an insertion, or coming out from a on an extraction. Every once in a while, you could look look over someplace in the area we were operating in, and you'd see like flashes. You could actually see the shock waves coming up through the trees. It was a B-52 strike, what they called an arc light. They had three B-52s. They got some intelligence that in this area, they were a bunch of bad guys, so they just unloaded a whole bunch of bombs, dropped it in the jungle. Sometimes they got it right. So, uh, we, okay. We'd go in sometimes on what was called a BDA, bomb damage assessment, and you'll pour over some base camp that had gotten smacked really hard. Um, and... Boy, what those bombs could do is just absolutely 750 pound bombs, like strings of them, uh, through three airplanes in a trail formation, just in one concentrated area. Um, but yeah, that, that's I don't know how many tonnage was lost in just the jungle, let alone what hit yeah. the towns and cities and up around Haiphong and Hanoi. Yeah, that's yeah, and there's still over 1500 US soldiers unaccounted for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
which that's a lot. Still kind of a big deal in the U.S., the MIAs, what they call missing in action, MIAs. Over 1,500 of them, which is a lot. I mean, even the sheer numbers that went in uh, was massive. I think. What have we got here? So the cost was in today's money over a trillion dollars. Mm-hmm. So I think at one stage I read somewhere a million dollars a day. <laughs> and when it was over, what was your thoughts? What was it like? Were you like, what was that oh. all about? Or thank God it's over. Or I, and I, I still remember I was in graduate school at the time. And when they announced, we knew that the South was was losing. Yeah. When they when they they came across the DMZ, the NVA came down with tanks and everything, and there was a, a tremendous battle. I forget where it was, where the South the South Vietnamese Army acquitted itself on K. I think it was uh, very well against the North. But I mean, that was just like a basically they were putting their finger in a hole in the dike when there were about a thousand other holes in the dike. They plugged one of them. But when Saigon fell, uh, my one of my first thoughts was the Cambodians that I've been working with. What's happened to them? What's going to happen to them? Because you got obviously in a year when you're working with these people as closely as we were, because they had yeah, you each depend on at, each other. at the edge of our camp. They had their families. Yeah. They they brought their entire families along. We'd be invited over every once in a while to have dinner with with them. They were our people. They were yeah. they were. But, I had responsibility, direct responsibility for three teams of ten men each. Um, ten, so thirty Cambodians were my immediate responsibility. And um, I, and one just by the way, one funny little thing. I was walking into the Cambod village with one of them one time, and I didn't know it at the time. But in a lot of Southeast Asia, two men who are very f- good friends will walk holding hands. And this guy just took my hand as we're walking along, and I'm thinking. I'm not going to the jungle <laughs> with him again. <laughs> I found out later what it, what it all meant. Yeah. But that's that we got very close with him, and that was my first thought when, when Saigon finally fell. What's going to happen to yeah, the people right. I've been working with? And what was ultimately what no idea. of them? No idea. Absolutely no idea. Maybe a lot of them had gone back to fight against the um, Khmer Rouge, and then they would have gotten folded over when the KR took over and you know, the other killing fields in Cambodia, if you remember yeah. any of the history of that. Um, I really don't know. But uh, that, that was my immediate thought, and I just thought, what a waste. We put all this time, mm. all this energy, and all these men that never made it home again. Yeah. Um, for what? We didn't even buy time. Yeah. We didn't even buy time. And now... The people that we're bitterly fighting are part of the whole world community. Yeah. Um, it was, um, I guess, a massive deflation. Yeah, definitely. I can. It would have to be. It would have to be. Yeah. And I know that when I went to, uh, I went to visit my brother on one of my trips home. I say home. I still say home. I get over there and I and talk about this home. Yeah. yeah, Australia going home. <laughs> but I went to the wall in Washington and walked up to my ear and found too many names that I knew, yeah. guys I'd gone to college with or uh, people that I'd, I'd trained with. And uh, it, it was, when you see something like that, when it's, when it's right there, 
you read about it, you can maybe read in a newspaper about things, but when you, you see that, and the way that they did the wall, it just says, Bernie Bazatz, uh, 1947-1968. That's a short span. That's well, the, short. the big thing about that war that a lot of people today don't realize is because it was a draft-fueled war right. that there were disproportionately a, a hell of a lot of 18- and 19-year-old kids that were going over to fight that thing. World War II, again, was, was different because it, co- it encompassed... 18 and 19 year olds up through 30, 35 year olds. Yes. Um, my dad, I think, was probably 20, 24, I guess, when, uh, when, the, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor and he signed up. No, no, he would have been older than that. 26. 26. When he went over, yeah, when he signed up. And, uh, it it, uh, it that encompassed a, a huge disparity in ranges yeah. because people would quit their jobs. They had, they were employed. They had the beginnings of careers, yes, yes. and they went to fight for their country. Yes. They tried to tell us in Vietnam we were fighting for our country, but the, the truth is, none of us could. Very few of us, I think, really thought we were fighting for our country. My first tour, I was well behind it. I yep, we got to do this. My second tour. I started really, really sour on it. Um, when I when I got out and I was back in graduate school, I was pretty ambivalent. But I, I, I thought that when Congress actually pulled funding for the South Vietnamese, that I felt that was a betrayal because we had promised them as part of the peace accords with, you know, with the American withdrawal from Vietnam. We had promised them we would support their, their military. And they, when they pulled the funding, it was just a matter of time before South Vietnam folded. But um, mm. yeah, but it, it was a different war. It, it's it's my attitude shortly after that was if they ever want a, another war, and they want me, they're going to have to come and find me. Yeah, that's fair. Because I'm not turning up at the door. Yeah. yeah. And even then, they'll, they'll, they they can get me in kicking and screaming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And. Also, I'm assuming at the time there was quite a big public, you know, the backlash against the war was going on. You know, it wasn't it wasn't uh, the homecoming of the World War Two. Oh no, not yeah. even close. No, no. You had, you know, there was that as well. So you've you've gone through all this. You've done all this. You've lost all this. Well, when I when I came back from my first tour, we came back in in we still in uniform and in San Francisco. Get, you know, disembarking, turning in all our, our equipment and everything, giving an air airfares home, and uh, walking through San Francisco Airport, I I was proud as could be, man. I had my green beret on, and I had a couple of hero badges that I got by doing a couple of stupid things. <laughs> really, a, a hero is somebody who completely snaps. His logic goes out the window. <laughs> Puts everything on it's, the line to get something done. Well, what they were reading about, you know, they, when they were reading off one of the, these things that I got. They're reading, and you know, Lieutenant Heron, da 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 da, and I'm thinking to myself, I didn't do that. <laughs> no, <laughs> they got me confused with somebody else, I, not I, you know, not me. But just just the looks I got, in some cases, just complete transparency, looking right through you. Some with visual, not hatred, um, 
dislike. Dislike. Yeah, really? I mean, you're looking at like uh, you know, Baby Killer. Uh, I mean, all the Green Berets. You know, we had the reputation for you know savagery and, uh, but we were not involved in the conventional war in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. Um, most of the special forces units were in uh, what they called A teams, strung along the Cambodian Laotian borders, and they were set up as like bulwarks. Training with local people and giving them medical care because a medic was assigned to every every unit. And okay. Special forces medics were very very highly trained. Somebody said I think it probably the equivalent of about two years of medical school. Wow, okay. So you know helping the local people and everything. And but they were they were basically in their their A teams and would poke their noses out once in a while to see what the bad guys were up to. Uh, there was one that we staged near. Yeah, that place called uh, Tain Inn. There's a small little village called Katoom, which was also known as Kaboom because <laughs> it was a kilometer from the Cambodian border. And the, they used to use it for target practice. Oh, and learning that, you know, the mortar crews, again, you know, right 50, left 50, add 50, you know, to zero in on a target. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's what Special Forces was doing primarily. We weren't, uh, we weren't part of the Project Phoenix thing where... Uh, it was a CIA program where uh, suspected Viet Cong, uh, suspected Viet Cong, were executed by a special group of South Vietnamese aided by CIA people. I mean, Project Phoenix. This is no secret. You know, you could, it's on the on the internet, and it was a, a brutal. It was a brutal war. Period. You know, the, the Viet Cong, after Tet, up near Hue, they found eighteen hundred civilians that had been killed and buried, wow. women and children, to terrorize the um, other South Vietnamese government supporters. Yeah, so there's a lot of... Yeah, they weren't, they, they, they were, I mean, they were, it was more of a civil war than anything else, yeah. pure and simple. Yeah. Uh, but they weren't fighting using the Geneva Convention by any means. Yeah. <coughs> They were fighting the way that they thought they had to fight. Yeah. That's it, and it is, it's, yeah, it's sad that you don't know what became of, you know, it's ended, and you're none yeah. the wiser as to what became of the people you were there to protect and help. Well, even I, I remember looking up uh, my, old, my old unit, and I found a couple of names of some of these guys that were virulently, virulently anti-Obama. So they probably big Trump supporters, yep. and uh, but but again, in the nature of things, the people that would gravitate toward a unit like Special Forces would be have, have been, by and large, politically to the right of center. Oh, okay. If if we were discussing politics at the time at all, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which we weren't. I mean, nobody was. We weren't. Uh, I mean, all of us that were there were effectively on the same side. I grew in a different direction after I got out of it all. Um, so my politics are well and truly on the left yeah. now. Uh, but again, most of my compatriots were very right-wing in some cases. Wow, that's amazing, isn't it? That the same experience, same age. Well, no, not the same experience because part of the experience was after the war. Yeah. The ones that stayed in the war uh, or stayed in the army... Probably a lot of them would have had almost the same feeling 
that some Germans did after World War One that they were betrayed. Hamburger Hill was damn close to what it was like. When you're when you're in that situation, you're not fighting for your unit or for your country. You're fighting for the guy next to you. You're, you're fighting for that little group of people that you're with, and to hell with anything else. Yeah. You don't you don't care about the enemy per se. You don't care about the next platoon or the next squad. You're you're, you're fighting for your own. And um, so, they have a completely different perspective, the grunts, mm. to to what I had. Aviators again would have a completely different perspective. Thank you very much for your time and your oh. and your information. I've really in, it, it's I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, we enjoyed I the, probably just rabbited on a little bit too much. Oh but no, look, it's that's what it is. That's what I wanted it to be. It's 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 not it's best way to describe it is um, an interview is like a game of golf. You hit once and off you go to the next hole. But a conversation is tennis. It's back and forth, and the ball can go anywhere on the court. Mm-hmm. So okay, yeah, that's that's exactly what I wanted it to be. So no, so thank you very much for coming. And, really and, and just by the it. way, if, apropos of nothing, but if you are a golfer, if you've never seen it, go onto YouTube and look up Robin Williams on golf. Okay. The long version. All right. Because he manages to tell it from the perspective of the drunken Scotsman who invents the game. Oh. <laughs> 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 All right. We'll have to chase it up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, right. it really is. It, if, if it doesn't get a laugh out of you, there's something yeah. really wrong with your sense of humor. Thank you to my guest, Dennis, for his time and his thoughts. If you know anyone that would enjoy the show, please do share it with them. You can also find out more at bumpingintoo.com.au. That's the show, and I'll catch you next time on Bumping Into.